last week it was a great pleasure to have George Klein with us and um, he's a representative of Foursquare Missions International and he just was challenging us to think differently about how we can reach um, not only our own communities but the world with the love of Jesus. So tonight we're going to pick back up in 1 Corinthians and we're already to chapter 15. So um, there's only 16 chapters in the book. We did actually skip 13 though. So we have only about four weeks left and it's just crazy. It's been a lot of fun teaching through and discussing this letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthian church um, for the last six months with everybody. So um, this chapter contains what I think is one of the most confusing verses in the entire New Testament. Um, maybe in the entire Bible. But every commentary I read on this particular verse says things like, we have no idea what it means. Or, um, we have three theories about what this could mean. Or, um, something like, this verse's meaning is going to forever be obscure. <laughs> so, anyway, that verse doesn't come until almost the very end of the section, so you just have to pay attention until then. So tonight we're going to be reading from verses 1 to 34 of chapter 15 in 1 Corinthians. Um, and I just love this section because to me it is, in a nutshell, just the gospel itself. It's the good news all kind of packaged up and tied with a ribbon for us. So we're going to go ahead and start by reading verses 1 through 11. And tonight I'm reading from the English Standard Version. Um, so I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you, as of first importance, what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he, all, he appeared to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul starts out in verses 1 and 2 by saying that he wants to remind them of the gospel. He wants to remind them that this is what they first believed in when he or maybe another apostle preached to them. And it's what they stand on. It's the foundation of their lives. And that it's the message of how they're being saved by God. And he says that it's of first importance. And it's what he received. So in a world without the written New Testament, it was really important for the early church to pass along an oral tradition, right? So they imparted information to each other, and it was this constant handing down of the story. So Paul's reminding them that this was the message he preached to them, and it's also the one he received directly from Jesus when he encountered Jesus. Um, and it seems like our modern world 
is kind of strangely obsessed with what's new and also fascinated with what's old. Um, to me, it seems like people want the newest technology, but they want it to have some sort of vintage charm too. <laughs> like people want new music, but they think it would be cool if it was on vinyl or... Um, <laughs> We don't just recycle anymore, we're upcycling everything. Like we're buying things at thrift stores and redoing furniture, re-sewing clothing or jewelry. Um, or maybe I just follow too many DIY blogs or like hipsters <laughs> online, I don't know. Um, but with the world around us constantly changing, I think that we're still kind of attracted to what stood the test of time. Um, and there's something comfortable and reliable about tradition in a way, even if we do change with the times a bit. And that's what Paul's reminding the Corinthians. He's saying that this is the reliability of the gospel. This is how it's substantiated. And he mentions two different witnesses in those first 11 verses of the gospel. He mentions the witness of scripture and the witness of a bunch of actual eyewitnesses, right? All of these people saw Christ after his resurrection. So Paul says that Christ's death and burial and his resurrection is the foundation of our faith. And then Paul goes on to point out his own unworthiness of being an apostle. He says that he's unworthy in verse 9. And in other translations, um, it says that he's unfit to be called an apostle. And it made me think, why is he unworthy? And he says it's because he was saved from a life where he was persecuting God's church. And he reminds the Corinthians of this foundational message. But I think that um, sometimes I read that section where he says, um, what does he say? On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. <laughs> sometimes I kind of read that and I'm like, okay, Paul, are we a little braggy there or what? But I think he's actually overwhelmed by the gospel again in this section. That he's caught up in thanksgiving and gratitude. He's, he's saying, I'm doing better than I deserve because I was persecuting God's church and Christ saved me from that life. Um, and I think, shouldn't we all feel a little bit unworthy or unfit sometimes? Um, if we were really grateful for what Christ did. Because I've spent a lot of my life um, feeling unworthy or not good enough. And then I've also spent a lot of my life feeling entitled or like the world owes me something. Um, and I think that's kind of a funny contradiction. And I don't think I'm the only one that's ever felt that way. So in the end, I think we're all doing a little better than we deserve. So in this first section, Paul either knowingly or he unknowingly reminds us of our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And he does that by reminding us of his own need for a Savior and his own <clears throat> gratitude for God's grace. Okay, I'm going to get a little bit academic on you tonight for just a second here. So in theology, um, there are different theories about this thing called the atonement, right? Um, what the death... And resurrection of Jesus means. And so these theories, seriously, I'm getting academic, I'm sorry. Um, they all fall, fall under this branch of theology that's called soteriology, okay? There's all these ologies in theology. 
And so ter means savior in Greek. So basically it's the study of what it means to be saved. Um, what is salvation? And the theory that I know best um, is the one of substitution. Right? So it's, it's this idea. That at the beginning of time, God created the world and God created Adam and Eve and he made them in his own image. And then God walked among them in the Garden of Eden and life was absolutely perfect. But that couldn't last for long because Adam and Eve broke God's law, right? They were tempted by the serpent to eat of this fruit that was on the only tree in all of creation that God had forbidden. Um, and they were tempted to become like God, to know the difference between good and evil. And they ate. And because of that disobedience, sin entered the world and evil and death entered the world too. And so what was once perfect became broken. And then most of the Hebrew Bible, most of the Old Testament continues on to tell us the story of how God's chosen people, the Israelites, um, they just messed it up again and again and again. And there was no way that they could become holy on their own. And there's no way for us to become holy on our own, right? Um, so then enter Jesus, God himself, who is born with human flesh and blood. And he lives a perfectly righteous life. And he lives without sin. And then he dies without sin. And he takes our place. He substitutes himself. He dies the death that we deserved. So that we could as sinful and messed up as we are, be right in our relationship with God again. Um, and Jesus reverses that curse and he undoes what Adam did. So that's, that's the theory of substitution, of what, what Jesus' death means. Um, let's go ahead and move forward. We'll keep that in mind as we read this next section. Um, we're going to read verses 12 to 23. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We're even found to be misrepresenting God, some translations say. We're liars. Um, because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise if it's true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished or are lost forever. They're just dead. Um, that's my paraphrase. <laughs> if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, remember Adam, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in all, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. 
So now I think we're getting into the meat of why Paul was even feeling the need to remind the Corinthians of the gospel, right? Like so much of this letter to them has been about the gospel anyway. So why is he reminding them at this very end of it? Um, and hadn't it only been a few years since they'd heard the gospel? Was it really like so far in the back of their minds? But already in such a short period of time, some of the people in the city of Corinth were denying the resurrection. And I'm not accusing anyone here of denying the resurrection or not believing in it. But I think sometimes I can get so focused on the crucifixion and the death of Jesus and that substitution, what it did for my sins, for my forgiveness, that I forget about the hope of the resurrection. Um, Paul wrote in verse 3, Christ died for our sins, just as the scripture said. That's verse 3. And I think that some of the Corinthians, and maybe some of us, and I do sometimes, I stop right there before moving on or reading on and thinking about that he was buried and rose on the third day. So I have some rhetorical questions for us. What's the death of Christ without the resurrection? What good would it be? Um, without the resurrection of Christ, I wonder if we're not left with a dead moral teacher, just a really good teacher with good morals. And even if we believe that God, that Christ is still God in that, I wonder what good it would be to have a dead God, right? Somebody who just, well, he was God in the flesh, but he died. Um, So I'm going to go ahead and read verses 24 through 28 in um, a different translation because the ESV, I apologize, but it gets really repetitive and I find it a little difficult to understand. Um, it's sort of a tongue twister with like the same word over and over again. So I know that it's a little bit unorthodox to switch translations for only four verses, but I don't want us to be all confused. So... I also love some of the word choice here anyway. So I'm reading from the New Living Translation, verses 24 to 28. After that, the end will come, when he will turn the kingdom over to God the Father, having destroyed every ruler and authority and power. For Christ must reign until he humbles all his enemies beneath his feet. And the last enemy to be destroyed is death. For the scriptures say, God has put all things under his authority. Of course, when it says all things are under his authority, that does not include God himself, who gave Christ his authority. Then, when all things are under his authority, the Son will put himself under God's authority, so that God, who gave the Son authority over all things, will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. So this version repeats the word authority a lot. The other version repeats the word um. What is it? Well, I don't know. Subjection. subjection. Over and over and over again, saying the word subjection. So, um, but I love that. I love the ending of this uh, verse 28, that God will be utterly supreme over everything, everywhere. So back to those death and resurrection questions. What would be the point of Jesus' death without his resurrection. And in that concept of substitution, Christ's death gains for human beings 
the forgiveness of sin. But my question is, what good is the forgiveness of sin if we all die after that? Mm. Um, and what good is forgiveness of sin if we still live in a really broken and messed up world? What good is it if we're still surrounded by a bunch of people who sin and we keep sinning too? Um, Paul is reminding the Corinthians that the resurrection is the reason for his existence, for their existence. Because if death is all there is, life seems kind of hopeless. Um, and in Christian theology, there's also, going back to the academic side, this concept of Jesus as a cosmic redeemer, okay? That Christ is the victory. And that he didn't just come to redeem mankind and to give individual people salvation. That's really important. And the part that I would say I've tended to focus on my whole life. Um, but Jesus also came to restore what was broken. Um, he came to renew creation. He came to restore the image of God in us so that we can live differently. Um, and he came to overthrow death and evil for good, forever. And the Bible says that he's going to return and he's going to finish that work. And I think that's what Paul is emphasizing here. That the resurrection is what gives us this hope that Jesus is going to put everything into God's authority so that he's supreme over everything everywhere. Mm -hmm. So that he's all in all someday. And it, we may not see it today, but it's there. Um, that's his promise to us. Okay, so we're going to finish up here and brace yourselves. Here's that confusing verse, and we're going to start in 29, and we're back in the ESV for this. Um, 29 through 34. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? Okay, If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay, there you go. There's Why that one that? verse. Yeah. <laughs> Why is okay. that? Yeah, there's just one Certain, verse. Uh, yeah. religions do that. <laughs> Certain religions do baptize pe people on behalf of the dead. And it comes from just this one verse. Um, reading in verse 30. Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord, I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some of you have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Okay. So as an aside, let's tackle that verse 29. Like what in the world could it mean to be baptized on behalf of the dead? Um, most people kind of write this verse off um, because we don't really know what it means. And the clearest reading from the Greek is exactly what it says. That people are being baptized vicariously for someone who died. Um, and... The only problem with that is that it seems strange that Paul wouldn't condemn that behavior, that he wouldn't, like, say, hey, stop doing that, because he's told them to stop doing a bunch of other things during this letter, so why not tell them that that's weird, you need to stop it. Um, 
And the other problem is that we have zero other scriptural like evidence of this happening in the early church and no historical evidence of it happening in the early church either. So it's just kind of this fluke verse. Um, but I'll tell you what my favorite, my favorite interpretation of this verse is. And then if you want to research it more and find out like the four other theories that there are, I can point you to commentaries and um, you can research it for yourself. Um, so my favorite theory about why people were being baptized for the dead or what this verse means is that they were being baptized because of the testimony of the dead. So that the witness and salvation stories of the people who had died were making other people want to know Christ. Mm -hmm. I have no idea if that's a real thing about what it means, um, but I really like that idea that they were... They were being baptized because people who had died had such a, a great story of how Jesus had changed their lives. So, um, to conclude tonight, and with that odd verse out of the way, um, I just have a couple of couple more rhetorical questions for us to think about, to have some food for thought. What kind of attitude do we have about life? Because um, Paul says to them um, to not be deceived, to not keep bad company. Um, and this, like, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. That's a pretty hopeless attitude to have. So if the resurrection's real, and if Jesus is promised to right every wrong, to wipe every tear, and to bring justice in this world, in this broken place, if all of that's true, then I think we should probably be the most hopeful people there are on the planet. Mm -hmm. um, we should be good news people. That's what gospel means. We shouldn't be bad news people. Paul says that we, we can't fall in with bad company that, that just says, let's eat and drink and be merry because tomorrow we die. We can't become anything different. Um, all of life is meaningless. There's nothing more. There's no hope. That's not the kind of life that Paul wants the Corinthians to live. And I don't think that's the kind of life God wants us to live. And then secondly, Paul and the other apostles, they were risking their lives for the gospel. And I think that one of the main points here is that the resurrection gives people hope in Christ, right? The resurrection gave the Corinthian people hope, and it gives us hope. And for Paul, that hope was worth everything. It was worth persecution, it was worth beatings, imprisonment. Whatever it means that he fought beasts at Ephesus, I'm guessing it was people because, I don't know, there's no story of him like being with lions in the lion den, but possible, I guess. But it was worth everything to him. It was even worth his death. So my final question to us is this. What does the resurrection mean to us? Does it mean enough to you and me that we would share our Christian hope with other people? A real hope, one that defeats evil forever, one that overcome the grave and death. 
and pain. Um, that's the kind of hope I want to believe in, and I think that's the kind of hope that Paul is bringing the Corinthians back to. So tonight I just want us to ponder that and think about it. We don't have any discussion questions. Um, we can talk about it later, but um, I want us to just think over that as we spend some time in worship and prayer. Jesus, I ask that you would help us to know how to respond and to listen to your voice and respond. In your name we pray.